Hello all, and the warmest of welcomes to the latest instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales one-person true crime show that seeks out those cases that may not be as familiar to the listener, those that are often obscure or long forgotten, sometimes those that you may hear and even not believe can be true, but always are, and that I've scoured the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland to bring for your listening. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You may hear his little bell because he's always by me while I do this. Peaks, the true crime enthusiast cat, is of course with me. And you guys are you guys, the reason that I do what I do each time around. It's wonderful as it ever is having you join me here today, which I thank you very kindly for doing so, and it does as ever mean the world to me that you do. And I hope that as I'm reaching you all today, then the episode finds you and yours all good, you're all staying safe, and you're all very well. So, and it feels like ages since I've put out a regular show episode, although it only has been a week's break, but we start with many thanks for the feedback and comments concerning the previous episodes of the show, what became our series impromptu trilogy, The Monsters of Ayrshire Tale, featuring the tragic case of Mary Julian and others, and which I must point out was very kindly pointed out to me by several listeners, is actually pronounced Mary not Mary, as I was pronouncing it. So apologies for that, but I thought bollocks to going back and redoing three episodes with it all. Apart from that, and I never and I never mind getting any feedback like that, it's good that these things get pointed out. The feedback's been really good about them, and the consensus seems to be along the same lines as my own feelings towards the perpetrator, Gavin Maguire, which is what an absolute shy talk we are talking about with him. Pure evil indeed. In fact, he's one of the worst that I've come across in the near four years that I've been doing the enthusiast Maguire is, and someone who completely deserves to rot and fester behind bars until he draws his last. So thank you very much for the comments, folks, and it was a tale that I was glad to have brought you. Thanks also as ever to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shoutouts this time around for Nina, Karen, Andrew Jackson, Leah Seltzer Espley, Jack Burrows, Samantha Gray, Kate Pannell, Zoe Southwell, Emma Green, Caroline Collins and Claire So There Alsop, what a fabulous name that is, plus Dave, Helena Horton, William Huber, Lorraine Smith, Laurie Wilhide, Monica Ott, Erin Moore and Anna Larkin who have each opted to annually support the show. It's amazing and so kind of you to do so all, it's so much very appreciated. And show stuff has gone out to some of you, whilst I hope that you've all gotten to at least make a start on the 25 unreleased bonus Patreon episodes that being a supporter of the show gets you. The latest one, bonus episode number 40, The Cannibal and the Cowboy, dropped just the other day, and it's a right pair of unreal tales. That one is, I tell you, especially the first one, and there'll be another one coming in just a couple of weeks. Now if you want to join these kind folks and get yourself some extra enthusiast tales such as New Year's Evil or The Samaritan and the Salvationist, perhaps Death in Highgate Woods or Suffer the Little Children to name just a few, then you're more likely to think that the proposed football super league was a good and valid idea, not just an example of greedy bastard football clubs, than to ever get confused doing so. It's the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on the Patreon site, always with that podcast suffix. Or you don't even need to do that, because the ever-present clickable link is in the episode show notes, as it is each and every time. Quicker than an MP on an expense claim, 
and for less than the price of a pint, you can be hearing these tales and more, and there may even be some great show stuff winging its way to you, who knows. Now I must say as well, that if you're in the show's Facebook discussion group, or you follow me on Twitter, then you'll already have learned this, but I'm very pleased to say that I have the first book from the show coming out towards the autumn also, which I absolutely can't wait for. It's long been a goal of mine to have done this one day, plus it feels the next natural step to take with the enthusiast. And to make this happen, I was only too happy to sign up with Adam and Catherine over at Crime Publishing Network. Now it's going to be an equal mix of selected tales that I've brought to you over the past five series, which I've had right trouble curating and selecting, I tell you plus several new tales that I've researched and written up, and all with the idiosyncrasies included that you may have noticed so far that I tend to come out with now and again on the show. For example, don't be surprised to see a shamble of bollocks here, or a top shagger Ken Barlow there, that kind of thing. First ones of the series, I believe, these. As always, as I feel to put it into the tale, then in it goes, because ultimately when, and if of course that you read it, then as you are, I'd love for you to imagine it in my voice. I can't begin to tell you how very excited I am about doing it. I've been selecting and deciding, changing my mind umpteen times, then researching away, and I'll be working harder than Barry White's belt over the summer to finish it all up and ultimately bring you tales from the true crime enthusiast, with more details to follow when I get them. Watch this space all. But of course, even with so much to do, that doesn't mean for a second that I neglect the show. It's what makes all of this happen after all. And we've got an episode to get to, don't we? Which we shall do after a short word from the episode sponsors, BetterHelp. Now like me, I'm sure you'll be glad to see the back of the dark times we've all had for the past year. Because it's proper been one, hasn't it? We're coming through it, but perhaps many of us are still finding things a bit difficult. I know personally I've seen difficult changes to my work life, I've suffered a bereavement, and lockdown and being away from loved ones and friends has been hard, with that constant worry about my nearest and dearest, and trying to ensure that I'm there for them as best that I can be, but from a distance, doing what I can and striving for a decent balance between my personal life, my work life, my podcasting life, it's tough, and at times it can be overwhelming. So, if there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving any of your own goals, this is where BetterHelp can come in and help you. Now, just to clarify, BetterHelp isn't self-help, I have to stress that. Instead, what you'll find with BetterHelp is that it assesses the issues you may be facing and then calling upon the broad range of expertise that it's got available, matches you up with your very own licensed professional therapist for professional counselling with specialists in a vast range of issues available, some of which might not be locally available to you, and one selected that best suits your needs. For whatever it may be that's bothering you, any issues that you may have, from family conflicts or relationship issues, to depression, even right through to sleeping troubles, in less than 24 hours you can start communicating with your own personal counsellor in a safe, confidential online environment a counsellor who you can schedule weekly phone or video sessions with, who you can message anytime you wish, and from whom you'll get thoughtful, timely responses and decent feedback from. BetterHelp is available for clients worldwide and is much more affordable than any traditional offline counselling, with even the offer of financial aid available to use the service if you should need it. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, 
you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. So I started this sixth series with the horrific tale of an ultimate act of misplaced revenge, hatred, or spite, whatever you want to call it really. In the 1997 arson attack on the home of the Khan family in Oxford that killed two members of the family and was orchestrated by Fiaz Begum Munchi, her sister, her boyfriend, and several other conspirators. In a two-part episode we started the series with called The Burning. Now it's an abhorrent, inhumane and truly evil thing to orchestrate in what must be a terrifying and horrific way for someone to die, arson. And although I was dismayed by researching the case, I was as equally dismayed to learn that such an act for revenge purposes sadly isn't an uncommon one. I found tale after tale as examples and researched several more than just the crimes of Munchie and Co, but ultimately decided to go with that tale. However, the others will always come at some point here on the show, and the time of another such tale has arrived this time around. For our episode, we're off back to the late 1990s and to the town of Chingford in East London to hear the exploits of a disturbed individual and the horrific consequences that the madness of misplaced or misperceived revenge can bring, when little or indeed no regard whatsoever is given to any others that may get in harm's way as a result of that revenge. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving children that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled Fury and Fire. Chingford, a town in East London and which is situated on the edge of Epping Forest, today forms part of the London borough of Waltham Forest and could be best described as a happy middle ground between city and country life. With the vast expanses of Epping Forest to its north and central London, with all that offers, to the south. It can claim of note to be the birthplace of Sir Jonathan Ive, the former Chief Design Officer at Apple, Its constituency members of Parliament have included former Conservative Party leaders Sir Winston Churchill from 1924 to 1945 and Sir Ian Duncan Smith since 1992. Jonathan Creek actor and comedian Alan Davis is from there, as are footballers Harry Kane and Teddy Sheringham, and it's where from the age of three, Posh Spice's other half, David Beckham, grew up. Now keeping a bit more in line with the true crime theme meanwhile, Chingford Mount Cemetery is the resting place of Ronnie and Reggie themselves, the Cray Twins. As a bit of an aside, if you've heard the latest Patreon episode, then this episode marks two in a row that the places featured with the events described in the episode have also been the final resting place of notable figures from the annals of British crime. Total random coincidence, that is. I'm not just going from cemetery to cemetery structuring the series around tidbits like this or anything. So it's Chingford we head off to. Well, bloody course it is, or whilst would I have described some stuff about it? I've not gone do-lally or anything. And it's back to the early hours of Saturday the 6th of March, 1999, to number 15 Bellamy Road there, 
a three-storey family house that was home to the Day family and was located as the end property in a quiet cul-de-sac. By that time of the morning, the first hour of the Saturday, the rest of Bellamy Road was quiet, with most of the other families in the street having gone to bed or just returning in from a Friday night out. Who remembers a night out, eh? And indeed, at number 15, there were just two members of the household still up at that time. 22-year-old plumber Lee Day and his new girlfriend, 17-year-old Yvonne Culverhouse, who were downstairs talking in the back kitchen. The other occupants of the house that evening were Lee's mum and dad, 50-year-old Sandra and Brian Day, Lee's grandmother, 76-year-old Kathleen Day, who was staying with the family at the time as she was convalescing after having undergone a recent operation, and Lee's three children, his son, two-year-old Reese, and his three-year-old twin daughters, Madison and Rhiannon, who each had the surname Himfan Day, adopting the surname of both their father and their mother, 21-year-old Kelly Himfan, Lee's former partner, whom he had just recently separated from. By all accounts, the split between Lee and Kelly had been a mutual and harmonious one, with both parties accepting that their relationship had simply run its course and remaining on friendly terms, agreeing to co-parent their children as best they could. Kelly maintained the primary day-to-day custody of the three, but Lee paid maintenance and had regular access to his children, including being able to have them stay at his family home. So by that time of the morning, as we've said, there was only Lee and Yvonne still up. Sandra was sharing a bedroom with her mother, with Brian sleeping in a spare back room, and the three children had been long since tucked up in bed, undisturbed due to the quietness outside. And by that time of the morning, the street was so quiet that no one noticed or heard the solitary figure silently get off the bicycle that he was on and wheel it up the tree-lined footpath that ran between nearby Tudor Road and Bellamy Road and that bordered the grounds of number 15. No one noticed or heard as he turned the bicycle around and leaned it against the pebbled ash wall, then took with both hands the bulky object he had cycled there with and walked silently up the front path of number 15 with it. And nobody saw or heard as when he reached the door, he unscrewed the cap of the five-litre container, silently lifted the letterbox and poured the container's entire contents through onto the front carpet, engulfing the hallway and the bottom of the stairs in four-star petrol. He then struck a match, waited a few seconds as it began to fully burn and then calmly dropped it through the letterbox. Without waiting around to watch his handiwork, he then made his way back down the path, leaving the now empty canister of petrol on the doorstep, got back onto his bicycle, and pedalled off with a feeling of exhilaration and a big beaming smile on his face. That will finally teach him for all he's done to me, the individual thought. The fire, as you can imagine, had taken hold immediately with devastating effect and only moments after it had ignited, the three-storey property was fiercely ablaze. It was just after 1am that a neighbour across the way noticed flames coming from the property and immediately raised the alarm and as fire crews sped to the scene, in the moments that followed, several neighbours from Bellamy Road were themselves outside attempting to assist as best as they could. One neighbour, David Garner, 
did manage to kick down the front door of number 15, but was unable to get inside, as were other would-be rescuers, because of the sheer ferocity of the blaze. Another neighbour, James Barnett, instead went around to the rear of the property and tried to smash the back door down. Spurred on to do so by the sight of Lee and his girlfriend Yvonne, seen briefly at one of the upper windows, screaming and pleading to be saved. Now horrifically, and this really is unimaginable this, the three children had also now awoken, and over the sounds of confusion could be heard screaming, crying and coughing. You can't even begin to imagine that, can you? How much would that spur you on to want to try and do whatever you could to get them out to save them? How much? You can't even imagine it, can you? A neighbour and close friend of the Day family, Lisa Lewis, described later how she was woken in the early hours by the sounds of screams and cries. She told the press, I could hear the kids coughing and crying. It was terrible. There was nothing I could do. I ran downstairs and called 999 and then went outside. I got a neighbour who's a window cleaner to get his ladders off the van. But it was too late. The screaming and crying had stopped. You couldn't see them anymore. With access from the front of the house out of bounds then, as neighbours tried desperately to batter down the back door, which was of course locked, there was a sudden huge explosion, and the windows of the house blew out as the glass expanded from the sheer heat inside, showering the would-be rescuers below with shards of glass. David Garner, meanwhile, had returned with a ladder that he placed at the front of the house, and a moment later, with him footing it, another neighbour, Craig Durrell, was climbing straight up it, where a moment later he was able to get Lee's father, Brian Day, out of an upstairs window. Brian leapt from the ladder and landed in the front garden of the property, where raising himself up and ignoring the severe burns that he had received to his hands, was immediately trying to get back inside to try and get his entire family out. His wife, his mother, his son, and his three beloved grandchildren. As the injured man was being restrained from trying to get back in, in what would be certain suicide, Another anguished figure ran into the cul-de-sac, screaming hysterically, the children's mother, Kelly Himfan. Told immediately of the blaze, Kelly, who lived nearby, had run straight to the scene in her nightclothes and was now screaming hysterically, Get my babies! Get my babies! You can't even imagine it, can you? That's the real stuff of nightmares there indeed, isn't it? But sadly, Try as every neighbour might, and even when firefighters arrived at the scene moments later and began battling to extinguish the blaze, the inferno was just too fierce, and the family members inside never stood a chance. The following morning, a spokesperson for the London Fire Brigade said, The body of an adult female was found in a first-floor rear bedroom. Earlier, the bodies of two adults, a male and a female, and three children were found in a second-floor rear bedroom, while the body of another adult female was found in the front bedroom on the second floor. We are investigating the cause of the blaze, but at this stage we believe it to have been started deliberately. So intense had the blaze been, and so hazardous was the scene, 
even after the fire had been extinguished, that the property had lost its roof and most of its internal floors, and it was midday on the Saturday before the seven bodies could be removed from the burnt-out shell of number 15, it being too dangerous for the emergency services to remove them before then. Firefighters then used a crane to pass seven stretchers through a second floor window as they began the harrowing task of retrieving the bodies. When the fire had first taken hold, Lee and Yvonne had immediately made their way past it upstairs to try and get the remaining family members out, and trapped, the pair had been seen at one of the first floor bedroom windows, screaming for help. It was in this room that the body of Yvonne Culverhouse was found. Lee had at some point made his way upstairs again to a second floor bedroom where his three children slept and where he was found slumped across them on the bed alongside his mother Sandra who had had the same instinct as his son a vain effort to save the children. Lee's grandmother Kathleen meanwhile was found in the back bedroom on the second floor where she'd been sleeping. Later post-mortem examinations were to show that each of the seven victims had died as a result of smoke inhalation. As the tragedy barely began to register amongst the shocked community, before daybreak a bouquet of white flowers had been left on the pavement outside the burnt-out house. With them was a handwritten note which read, God bless Sarah Lee Abbey. Whilst the lone survivor, a shell-shocked Brian Day, was being treated at nearby Whips Cross Hospital for the severe burns that he'd received to his hands, shortly before 2pm, the dead children's mother, Kelly Himfan, had arrived back at the scene. Accompanied by two friends, the weeping woman could barely speak and so unsurprisingly refused to comment to the gaggle of press who were now at the scene. Now it would be a tragedy enough and unbearable if you thought that it had been an accidental fire, but what if you thought it was a deliberately started one? How would you even begin to get your head around and wonder who could do something like that? And although this was already the cause that was suspected by fire investigators, confirmation of it became apparent when a plainclothed police officer was seen removing a red petrol canister contained in a sealed evidence bag from the scene. The police officer in charge of the investigation, Detective Superintendent James Moore Sutherland, subsequently said, We are treating this as a murder inquiry. Somebody out there knows who has done this, and we need their help. This is a horrific attack on innocence. This is the worst I've seen in 31 years in the job. Horror indeed, eh? So as the resulting murder investigation began then, Along with the lack of witnesses to the blaze, detectives struggled to find an apparent motive for why exactly someone would commit such carnage. Was this the frightening prospect that someone, just hell-bent on causing destruction, had picked the house purely at random to burn down? Or had the family deliberately been targeted? You'd think someone who had hatred enough for the Day family to do something of that magnitude would be quite apparent and known, wouldn't you? But there was nothing. The results of a thorough examination of the lives of each of the four adults who had perished in the fire, sole survivor Brian Day, even the surviving Day children, Jackie, Gary and Simon, revealed nothing. The entire Day family were found to be nothing except highly regarded by all of their friends and neighbours. They'd lived in the Bellamy Road house since the late 1970s, 
where one neighbour who'd known the family since they'd lived there, Merle Edmonds, said, They were just very nice people, a lovely family. The children were beautiful, lovely children. The one item of note that did become apparent to police was that when Lee Day was a teenager, he'd been involved in several minor scrapes with the law and had previous convictions for burglary, criminal damage and possession of drugs. However, when he'd met Kelly and upon becoming a father four years previously, he'd settled down and steered his life away from a life of crime, instead becoming a plumber. Now, as I said earlier, Kelly and Lee had ended their relationship some months before the fire, but this had been on good terms and each were now happily in new relationships devoted solely to their children. A friend of Lee's told the Daily Mirror newspaper two days after the fire, they meant everything to him. Although he and Kelly had split up, he was a great dad. The twins especially were like little angels. It's impossible to understand why someone would want to do this. Because Lee and Kelly's relationship had been so long and remained so harmonious, this ruled out the main theory behind the grudge attack that detectives had, that it was a demented, raging ex-partner of one of them. It was felt sure that somewhere, an examination of one of the victims' lives would reveal a relationship that had ended badly, or someone they'd had trouble with in the past, or who felt wronged by one of them, and who had a very vocal and well-established hatred of them, which would have to be pretty bloody extreme one to do something like that, wouldn't it? But there was nothing. Nothing that was believable, anyway. Several bouquets of flowers, cuddly toys and tributes to the Day family appeared at the pavement outside the former number 15 as the police investigation continued, with friends and neighbours of the Day family broken by what had happened and struggling to come to terms with the tragedy. One touching message, a plaque bearing an image of the twins who had perished, became the centrepiece of these tributes and read, Away chasing rainbows, Madison and Rhiannon Day. 11 11 And when I see your photo, you seem to smile and say, Don't worry, I'm only sleeping. We will meet again someday. Remembered with a smile. You'd stop at nothing to find whoever had committed such carnage, wouldn't you? And then, some ten days after the blaze, Acting on evidence that had been established as a result of forensic examination on an item that had been recovered from the scene, police raided an address that was only a few streets away from Bellamy Road and arrested the male occupant, a 21-year-old man who lived there with his mother. He was no stranger to the Day family, for he was someone who'd known them for several years, ever since his school days, and had even been in one of the photographs that had once adorned the walls of the family home and someone who had left his fingerprints on a very red petrol canister that had contained the fatal fuel that had killed four generations of a family and that had been left at the scene, hoping it would be destroyed in the blaze. Following his arrest, the man, a part-time disc jockey named Richard Fielding, initially denied the attack, claiming that he knew nothing whatsoever about it but when presented with the forensic evidence which showed his fingerprints found on the petrol canister recovered from the scene, and arguably, 
you can't get a better smoking gun than that, can you? He later began to part confess his involvement in a series of conversations with police officers. Cocksure of himself, he told one of them, You'll never get me for murder, I'll just get off with arson or criminal damage. However, the longer Fielding spent in custody and the more relaxed he became with interviewers, the cocksure attitude slipped until he told them, in what he regarded as a confidential chat, that he was responsible but had not intended to kill all of the people in the house that evening, just one of them. He went on to explain that on the night of the fire, he'd argued with his mother, Marlene, who was a school teacher, and had stormed out of the house during a row after having a few drinks and had cycled off. He continued, If my mother had given me the money I'd asked for for another drink, this might not have happened. He also told police, with a smile on his face, that the fire had been, I quote, like a game of knockdown ginger, only with a bit more ginger. On Thursday the 18th of March 1999, Richard Fielding appeared at Stafford Magistrates Court in East London, charged with the murders of 74-year-old Kathleen Day, 50-year-old Sandra Day, 22-year-old Lee Day, 17-year-old Yvonne Culverhouse, 3-year-old twins Madison and Rhiannon, and 2-year-old Reese Himfen Day. He also faced an eighth charge, that of the attempted murder of 50-year-old Brian Day. During his short appearance, it was ruled that Fielding could not be named officially after Deputy Stipendry Magistrate Hugh Vickers ruled it was, I quote, not in the interests of justice or public order to identify him publicly, following claims from Fielding's counsel that to do so would endanger his family and friends. Thus, reporting restrictions were imposed, his name remained anonymous from the press, and Fielding was remanded in custody pending a further hearing eight days later, at which he was subsequently remanded in custody again, awaiting trial. Whilst Fielding was on remand awaiting trial, during their investigation to try and establish what possible motive he had had for committing the horrific crime, Scotland Yard detectives discovered that rather than being a friend of Lee Day, who it was established that indeed considered Fielding as a friend, Fielding actually despised him because he blamed Lee Day for his complete lack of success in life. It was discovered that Fielding had a long history of drug abuse, including using substances such as solvents, cannabis, LSD, ecstasy and cocaine, or as Keith Richards calls it, breakfast, which he'd started by experimenting with glue sniffing at age just nine, and that ran parallel to the disruptive behaviour he displayed that had seen him excluded from more than one school. Not having many friends due to this temperament and constant change in the schools, he had however in his early teens developed a friendship with Lee Day, and the two had knocked around together for a while, into the onset of their later teen years. This friendship developed into a youthful exuberance, shall we say, which led on to petty crime, and in one incident that was to take on great significance later for Fielding, the two friends, then aged about 14, were breaking into a school when Fielding caught his hand on a jagged piece of glass whilst doing so, cutting it quite badly and severing the tendons. He blamed his friend for this injury, which he later claimed had stopped him becoming a world-famous disc jockey. In another incident, 
Fielding claimed that a small quantity of cocaine that he'd once obtained from Lee Day had burned and damaged his nose and looks, thus ruining his chances of another planned career, that of Fielding becoming a male model. Now, as you may be beginning to suspect, either this guy Fielding had it proper going on with him and the skills and the looks to do all of this for real, or he lived a bit in cloud cuckoo land, and I know which one I'd choose. From an early age, Fielding had shown signs of disturbance and extreme paranoia, claiming that from the age of nine, about the time that he started on the glue, funny old thing, that he was being stalked by various individuals, claims that he continued over the years. He would claim that everyone he knew was spreading rumours about him, encouraging people to laugh at him and spreading lies about his sexuality, with the biggest offender of this being, guess who? Lee Day he'd grown to secretly despise as the years passed. By the time of the fire, so disturbed and paranoid was Fielding that he'd taken to sleeping with an iron bar, an axe and a hammer underneath his bed, as well as a ceremonial sword at the top of the stairs, I quote, for my own protection. And even whilst in custody awaiting trial, Fielding had armed himself with a makeshift weapon because he claimed he feared staff would stick amyl nitrate up his nose. Only shortly into his remand period, he had as a result been transferred to Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire for assessment by psychologists. It was more than a year after the blaze which had killed seven people, on Tuesday the 16th of May 2000, that Richard Fielding appeared for trial at court number one of the Old Bailey in London where he denied seven counts of murder, but instead offered a plea of guilty to manslaughter on each count due to diminished responsibility. As the charges were read out against him, Kelly Himfant, the mother of the three children who'd perished in the fire and who was sat in the public gallery at the back of the court alongside the sole survivor of the fatal fire, Brian Day, screamed the words, Evil bastard at Fielding, before collapsing sobbing, her face buried in her hands. When order had been restored, Fielding admitted pouring petrol through the letterbox of number 15 Bellamy Road on March the 6th of the previous year and setting it on fire, admitting his culpability in the deaths of Lee Day, his twin girls Madison and Rhiannon, his son Reese, his mother Sandra Day, his grandmother Kathleen Day and his girlfriend Yvonne Culverhouse. However, for reasons unestablished, Fielding pleaded not guilty to the attempted murder of Brian Day and the Recorder of London, Judge Michael Hyam, ordered that this charge remain on file, it not to be proceeded with. His pleas of not guilty to murder but guilty to manslaughter by account of diminished responsibility were accepted by the prosecution at the Old Bailey, with counsel for the Crown, Orlando Pownall QC, telling the court the prosecution agonised greatly before accepting the defendant's pleas. We understand also that our decision will not be met with unreserved support from those whose lives have been devastated by these events. Now the Crown had at first been wary of accepting Fielding's manslaughter plea as we've just said, believing that he may be simply feigning madness. Indeed, he'd said to police during interviews after his arrest, I'm not going down for murder. It's manslaughter, if anything. Offer me that, and I'd take it. But, the prosecutor said, 
In the end, the sheer weight of the psychiatric evidence that concluded Fielding was severely mentally ill meant that, I quote, there could be no realistic prospect of a conviction for murder. Probation reports were then presented to the court by the prosecution that spoke of Fielding having extreme paranoid psychosis and a narcissistic personality disorder, with the roots of these going back many years. Several psychiatrists who had examined him during Fielding's time on remand had each agreed that the defendant had a severe mental illness, most likely schizophrenia, and one doctor who had treated Fielding at the high-security Rampton Hospital, Dr. Sala Verma, told the court that Fielding's prognosis was, I quote, appalling, with little chance of his illness ever improving. He added that the defendant was an extremely dangerous individual who had shown no remorse whatsoever for his crimes, a claim that was supported by another psychiatrist to give evidence, Dr. Anthony Maiden, who told the court that Fielding's disorder made him unable to feel concerned for others. He furthered, he was motivated by delusions and crazy ideas. He is a very dangerous young man. Fielding, meanwhile, was reportedly more concerned with the cut of his shirt and the colour of his socks than following events of the trial proceedings, seemingly wanting to look the best he could as he revelled in his notoriety. Prosecutor Mr Pownall then told the court of Fielding's schooling, his expulsions and previous episodes of disturbance and hyperactivity, his history of drug abuse, and how he had come to be what could best be described as living in a dream world. A dream world in which he'd become fixated with Lee Day, a man he'd been at school with. Fielding came to blame Lee for almost everything he perceived in his deluded state that had gone wrong in his life the court hearing the examples of the cut hand that Fielding claimed had stopped him from becoming the next bloody fat boy slim, and the cocaine he'd bought from Lee that he believed had damaged his nose and disfigured him, thus ruining Fielding becoming the next Fabio. I couldn't think of any other famous male models, to be honest. With each of these instances, Fielding obsessed and became more paranoid about them as time passed, believing each injury made him appear unattractive to women, that none would want him because of his disfigurement, which of course, by the way, he didn't have in the slightest. And as he came more and more to believe that his life had been ruined, he began to build more and more of a fury and resentment against Lee Day, whom Fielding fixated upon, blaming him as the cause of his ruined life. That resentment and fury festered until it burst in the early hours of March the 6th, 1999, when crazed Fielding torched seven members of the Day household to death in an act of deranged vengeance. Outlining the events of the evening of the fire, Mr Pownall told the court. On the night of the fire, Fielding had had an argument with his mother. He left the house with £80 that his mother had given him and that he went out and bought beer with. Then he went to a nearby filling station, bought a petrol can, and filled it with five litres of four-star fuel. A garage customer, assuming that Fielding had run out of petrol up the road, offered to give him a lift, but Fielding candidly told him, with a big smile on his face, I haven't run out of petrol, I'm going to do a house. Now this good Samaritan, thinking that Fielding must simply be joking, did nothing upon hearing this, and fair play, who tells a stranger that they're just off to commit arson? Seriously. 
Fielding had then mounted his bicycle, the full petrol can balanced on the crossbar, and rode off steadily the short distance to his victim's home. Once there, he had then silently poured the fuel through the letterbox, all five litres of it, and lit the vapours with a match before pedalling off. The results, as we've heard, were devastating. The petrol can containing Fielding's fingerprints was found at the scene the next day, and following the results of forensic examination of this item, which revealed Fielding's fingerprints all over it, he was arrested nine days later. Mr Pownall told the court that when arrested, Fielding had at first denied all knowledge of the fire, but had soon admitted the crimes, almost cheerfully. He said, He seemed elated and buzzing, he was behaving like a small child. He said it was for revenge, but that he felt bad. He said, If it had just been the kids that died, it would have been easier for me to say sorry. Yeah, Fielding really said and felt that. Unreal that, isn't it? Presiding Judge Hyam said that on the evidence presented, he was satisfied that Fielding was severely mentally ill, and before ordering him to be detained in Rampton High Security Hospital without limit of time under the Mental Health Act, told him, If the crime had been committed by anyone with a normal mind, it would have been a crime of desolating wickedness. As Fielding was led away back to Rampton, he was heckled by several people in the public gallery, including the three surviving day children, and Kelly once again screamed, evil fucking bastard at him, before collapsing due to the sheer weight of grief that she was still harbouring, brought to the surface once again, by the enormity of the occasion. But although there was now no likelihood of Fielding ever realistically being back on the streets where he could ever possibly harm another person, the decision to send him back to Rampton was greeted with anger by family and friends of the victims. Outside the court, Kelly said, He's got away with murder. Where's the justice? I feel so let down. It just goes to show that you can get away with murder. Brian Day agreed, saying, He's been given a manslaughter charge when he's a murderer. He murdered seven people and he can be back on the streets within a few years. If that's British justice, then there's something wrong. And Lee's elder sister Jacqueline added, Fielding is scum. Dying is too good for him. He needs to suffer. Going to hospital is an easy way out. You can completely understand how people must feel like that in such circumstances, can't you? Especially with the person responsible showing, even feeling, no remorse whatsoever. And as Fielding was locked away, police still admitted that they had no real idea why Fielding turned killer and why that evening. One detective who'd worked on the investigation said, There's no motive at all apart from his belief that everything that went wrong in his life was caused by Lee. His view was, It's a shame they had to die, but if Lee hadn't put me in this position, it wouldn't have happened. He had absolutely no remorse whatsoever. Detectives revealed that the one instance Fielding had expressed something anywhere near to remorse during his incarceration before trial was that his incarceration now meant he would miss a planned family holiday to Kenya, from which he would have returned as, I quote, a walking sex machine, 
and a DJ. I think behind bars is exactly where he needs to be Fielding, isn't it? Following Fielding's conviction, a still devastated Brian Day told the Daily Mirror newspaper that the only thing keeping him going were his other children, Jackie, Simon and Gary. His family home of more than 20 years destroyed and long since having been turned into a memorial garden, which is still there to this day, he told how he had subsequently moved into his mother's old home in nearby Walthamstow and alongside some cherished bits and pieces that he'd managed to salvage from the remains of the former family home, he had the ashes of his wife Sandra, his son Lee, his three grandchildren and his mother in a glass cabinet. A shrine to his wonderful family, he claimed. One wall of his home was adorned with many of Brian's cherished family pictures. Wedding photos, photographs of the grandchildren, photographs of the day children at various ages, the family doing various things, that kind of thing. One of the photographs was a school photograph of Lee that in the photograph stood next to him was Richard Fielding. But Brian had cut the killer out of the picture, saying, I can't have a picture of him in my lounge. He's evil. He used to come to our house a lot, but I didn't know much about him. My nightmare was that he would get away with it. Although Fielding was now locked away indefinitely, as we've said with little prospect of ever being released, his actions had still left Brian with a life sentence of his own even leaving him feeling survivor's guilt. He went on, You can never get over something like this, not fully. I'm not scared of dying, I should be with them anyway, but I have to carry on for the others. Some days are easier than others, but some days I just break down. Now Kelly Himfan was much the same, because this must be what people are left with in the aftermath of such carnage, mustn't it? In the same Daily Mirror article, Kelly told how she just couldn't forget her little ones, saying, Sometimes when I wake up I think, oh I must take the twins to nursery. Then I remember they are dead. I still buy sweets for them before I remember they're no longer there. You don't know how to deal with it. It just keeps creeping up on you. Kelly also told the newspaper that during the year Fielding had been on remand, on top of whilst trying to even begin to come to terms with her unimaginable loss, she'd even been plagued by disgusting anonymous telephone calls at home in which depraved individuals on the other end of the phone would laugh about the blaze and had even sickeningly taunted her about her children's deaths. A friend of Kelly's told the Daily Mirror, Kelly has had a terrible time. In the middle of all the stress, she found she had cancerous cells and had them removed. Now she has a new job in a betting shop and in the autumn she will have a baby. She knows she can never replace the three children she's lost but this is the last one she can have. It will be a third caesarean. Sadly, she's split up with her dad. Disgusting calls, a split from the father of her child. For years, as we've just said, one chink of light that came from such darkness was that Kelly had fallen pregnant with a new partner and ultimately went on to have another son and even a cancer scare thrown in. Some people just really do get everything possible thrown at them, don't they? 
Now, the surviving members of the Day family and Kelly were to face more heartache and outrage when, only weeks after his incarceration, details of the alleged lifestyle that Fielding was becoming accustomed to as a resident patient at Rampton were revealed in a newspaper report. It alleged that rather than punishment, Fielding was said instead to be enjoying games of bingo, having supervised canoeing experiences, taking cookery classes, joining in with gym and pool activities, and even having table tennis lessons in the secure unit. He had basic free reign of the facility, including his own key letting him in and out of his cell as and when he wanted, and there were even claims that the killer was taking part in social nights that were held there, including having access to non-alcoholic beer and wine. Now how much of this was newspaper sensationalism and artistic license, who knew? But seeing this as a slap in the face, which you would do, wouldn't you? A bitter Brian Day told the press. There seems to be no punishment there at all. We're the ones suffering for what he's done, not him. He has killed seven people and he's living his life like he's on a holiday camp. It's like the life of Riley for him there. He said to police he would get away with it and he has. This is not justice. Kelly Himfen added, It sounds more like Butlins than Rampton. It's a joke. Now these reports also led to the Woodford Green and Chingford MP Ian Duncan Smith throwing his weight in support of the Day and Himfen families by writing to then Home Secretary Jack Straw over the claims that Killer Fielding was living this life of Riley at Rampton. His strongly worded letter, taking a sympathetic tone to his constituents, argued that unless the punishment was seen to fit the crime, then quite rightly, the public's faith in the judicial system would be severely undermined, and it opened with, I am extremely concerned about these reports, and certainly appreciate how distressing they must be for Mr. Day and Kelly Himfen. They lost their families because of him, and it now seems he is enjoying himself at Her Majesty's pleasure. Now as a result, and there are no reports of any inquiry being ordered as a result of this letter, nor Jack Straw's response to it, but in response to the newspaper claims, staff at the hospital would not be drawn to comment on any individual cases, but did strongly deny that they ran such a liberal regime. They would only say that all wards in the hospital provided 24-hour therapeutic care, giving patients access to staff on a continual basis, rather than a routine of them spending long periods locked in their own rooms which sounds a very carefully worded response indeed, doesn't it? And helps the families who had lost so much absolutely bugger all. More than 22 years have now passed since the horrific night Richard Fielding's paranoia and misguided resentment led to him committing mass murder, and today he is largely forgotten by the general public, although of course not by the families and loved ones of those who perished at his hands. He did make the news once again just two years after his conviction, however, when he was reported as having developed a close friendship in Rampton with another scumbag who surely needs no introduction whatsoever, his crimes being abhorrent enough to be almost household names, so a murderer Ian Huntley. In October 2002, it was reported how the two had struck up a friendship while Huntley was in Rampton being assessed by psychologists there and where Fielding was still being held indefinitely. 
when Huntley was moved from Rampton to Her Majesty's Prison Woodhill in Milton Keynes some months later. He stayed in touch with his new pal Fielding by letter. In one such correspondence sent by Huntley that was intercepted and was leaked to former Sunday newspaper The News of the World, he told Fielding, I promised I'd write to you, and here I am. Rampton, it is not. In the two-page letter, Huntley spoke of the harsh conditions in his new jail compared with the relative luxury he'd experienced at Rampton, where he'd had his own CD player and TV, plus access to a swimming pool and library, before telling Fielding how much he missed the daily games of Scrabble. Fielding had, by all accounts, also told Huntley how best to deal with his incarceration when both were at Rampton, as Huntley wrote, I'm following your advice and trying to shut it all out, but it's very hard to do so. I seem to have made the right mess of things, and right now, I wish I was back there with you. He then signed off the letter by saying, All the best to the crazy gang. Take care of yourself. Richard Fielding remains in a secure hospital facility to this day, facing little to no prospect of ever being released. It chills you to the bone to learn of examples of the levels of carnage that an individual can unleash because of any kind of perceived revenge fixation they may have, and the case of Richard Fielding is no exception. It's an extreme case of mental illness this one, isn't it? To be that fixated and convinced that a person has ruined your planned career, your life, although these are complete delusions of grandeur, to be that fixated that you build a fury inside you, until you one night set fire to the home of that person in an act of misplaced, unwarranted revenge, knowing that such actions would be at the very least massively destructive, if not fatal, and having not care in the world of anyone else who may possibly be harmed as a consequence of you doing so. Terrifying. My heart really went out to Brian Day and Kelly here, because each had the most unimaginable losses there, didn't they? How would you even begin to try and come to terms with it? And especially when I'd researched how each had been in the year leading up to Fielding's trial. The survivor's guilt that Brian felt, or Kelly momentarily forgetting that her children were gone, buying them sweets without realising, and monstrous individuals making sickening malicious telephone calls to her. Heartbreaking, it truly is. What kind of scum does that? It's unlikely also I would have thought that it was solely Lee Day that Fielding blamed for things going wrong in his life. Someone with such extreme paranoia and delusion, who slept with bloody axes and swords underneath his bed for protection, you have to think, every single thing that ever went wrong for him, however slight it may seem to you or me, he would consider to be the fault of someone else, someone that was conspiring against him. Everything surely couldn't have been the fault of Lee Day, could it? So were there others, perhaps not as hated by Fielding as Lee Day was, but other people that he blamed for things going wrong for him? Did he have a list? And if he'd committed such carnage once, then had he not been caught when he was, would he likely have gone on to do it again, perhaps getting a taste for it from the satisfaction that it gave him? It doesn't really bear thinking about that, does it? Even the image of Fielding, and if you head over to the show's Instagram page, there's the publicised picture of him for you to see, and I'm not sure if it was taken after his arrest or not. It could be a photograph from a happy occasion. But each time I've seen it, I'm left a little chilled because I can't help but imagine his smiling face 
just as he is on this picture, and I imagine it just after he'd put that match to the fuel that he'd poured through the letterbox of the day household, cycling away on his bike, pleased with himself. Having just left a family to burn to death, somebody responsible for doing that must surely never be freed. What do you guys think? I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on the tale of Richard Fielding and his crazed revenge, and which you can do so by chipping in on the episode thread that's up each and every time in the show's Facebook discussion group, or by getting in touch with me through any of the show's social media links. And never mind where it is, I'm always happy to chat with you guys wherever you know that. Now I shall be back next Thursday as well with a standalone case, and then the week after it's ARC time. I don't want to put it off any longer. I can't wait to get started on it. Nothing else remains for me to say except that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now. <laughs>